This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. My guest today is Salam Thomas L., a.k.a. Principal L., author of the bestseller, The Immortality of Influence, We Can Build the Best Minds of the Next Generation. Today's guest is Salome Thomas L, aka Principal L. Principal L is a superstar educator, educational expert, and consultant. He was a teacher and principal with the Philadelphia School District from 1987 to 2009, where he received national acclaim as an educator and chess coach. Principal L is a regular contributor on the Dr. Oz Show and the author of the best-selling book, I Choose to Stay, which is about his teaching experience in the inner city. And his new book, The Immortality of Influence, which we'll talk about during our interview, stresses the importance of mentoring, parenting, and service to others. Principal L has a lifelong commitment to answering this basic question. How do we ensure that every child achieves his or her greatest potential? This question lies at the heart of the current national dialogue on education policy, the day-in and day-out work of school personnel, and the hopes of every parent. Central to the challenge is how we succeed with children who are facing the most serious barriers to success, that is, poverty, violence, neglect, and low expectations. For over 20 years, Principal L has taken on this challenge with the absolute belief that every child can and will learn, as long as adults in their world care enough to not give up. Welcome to Family Confidential, Principal L. Oh, thank you very much. I am honored to be here with you. Well, I am so honored to have you here because as an educator myself, reading your book, just actually just seeing the title of your book and those beautiful children on the cover with you there as a positive influence standing behind them, I just said, I've got to meet this guy. I've got to read this book and and talk to him about, about influence because it's something that's very near and dear to my heart as an educator, as a mentor, as an online advisor for tweens and teens. So let's talk about influence. If you could start off, I love the way you started off your your first chapter is called Failed Influence. And it's a really powerful story about Willow Briggs. And if you could give us a little bit of an insight into how you realized how important a positive influence is in the life of a child at a, at a crucial time. It is so positive. I mean, speaking of influence, and a young man like Willow, you know, who was a student of mine, you know, in middle school, and I met Willow coming right out of elementary school, and most of his teachers in elementary school, you know, predicted that he would drop out in middle school. He was a student who was just in the streets a lot, but he started playing chess with us at Vost Middle School in, in North Philadelphia, right near Temple University, and it changed his life around. You know, he was a young man who decided that school would become his focus. He became a better student, and he actually competed in the national championship tournament and, and uh, finishes one of the top 25 players in his division in the nation. That's remarkable. Well, tell me, did this, this chess program, is it something you instituted, or was it already happening in your school when Willow came along? It was something that had happened in our, it was happening in our school, but the program had died at the school, and, um, and I um, was able to sort of get students back involved. When I arrived at the Vaux, in 1989, the program, 
which had started in the 70s. Um, the coaches had moved away, moved to other states and other schools. But um, I knew about the school and heard about it. And I just said to myself that I've got to find a way to, to, to get students involved in chess because I needed to teach these students that they could choose the behavior, but they could not choose the consequence. And how does chess help them think about those things? Well, chess teaches children to critically think, to problem solve, teaches them to think logically, to think several moves ahead. And these are all skills that are transferable to life. Mm -hmm. It's very mathematical. Students who play chess have higher SAT scores, higher ACT scores, higher college acceptance rates. It is a no-brainer. If um, we want kids to be successful, we should be encouraging all students, if not to compete, just to learn the game. It seems to me that most people hear chess and they go, well, my child's too young to learn how to play chess. What do you say to people like that? What I say to them is I have a young man who I started in kindergarten a year ago. And as a first grader, he beat every fifth grade kid in my school (laughs) in chess. They don't want to see this little young man get off the school bus. (laughs) (laughs) So So Willow sounds like he was a natural at this. Yeah, he was. And most students who have trouble backgrounds they become good players because chess is a game where you have to be confident. You don't have to be aggressive, but students who are aggressive are students who can expose the flaws in the thought processes of other people. Mm. You know, the chess masters say that chess exposes your character flaws, but these students actually learn that they possess character through playing chess. This was, um, I mean, it was an awesome opportunity for them to, to use their problem solving and their survival skills because these are children in the inner city you know, who are, uh, are taking care of elderly parents or, or caring for younger siblings. They're taking care of their families in different ways. So they have those skills, you know, already. And um, for them to become national champions at my school, at Vox Middle School, these students were eight-time national champions. They won seven consecutive national titles. Amazing. Never done before in America. That's amazing. Never done before. But also at this school, in my 10 years there, we lost 20 students to murder. Oh. You know, and there's no teacher certification program that will ever prepare you to walk into a, a, empty, a classroom and look at an empty chair that 11, 12-year-old child will never sit in. Oh, my. There's nothing that prepares you for that. So, no. you know, to see Willow find a success was truly a blessing to me, you know, and to my heart. I bet you thought, I mean, from the reports that you were getting from his elementary school teachers, that this was a kid who was going down that road. Had it not been for chess and your positive influence and the influence of the other teachers who saw something in him, that he would have gone that way too. But then what happened? But, and I'm glad you made that point, Annie, because there were other teachers who saw something in Willow who encouraged me. Often when you hear the story of the successful teacher, you know, successful leader, the, the story is also told as if there's only one person who cares. But this was a community of people who saw something in a young man. And my philosophy is that we must believe in children until they begin to believe in themselves, that every child deserves to have at least one person be crazy about them. (laughs) And these people encouraged me. They encouraged me to help him. And, um, and I did. But then when he went on to high school, they didn't have a chess program. He lost interest in school. The community that we built, that we build for children, there must somehow uh, be a continuum for them. So they can continue to have that support. And he didn't have that. And I I felt like I failed him. And there were so many students who would come back and say, you know, Mr. L. Willow's on the corner. We had a nickname. We called him Foo. I don't know where he got this name from, but his name was Foo. And they say, you know, Foo's on the corner. He's back on the streets. You've got to help him. And I kept saying to those students, tell Willow to come and see me. Tell Foo to come 
to school and see me. And I did not go to get him. And when I finally decided to do it, it was too late, Annie. He had been murdered oh. as a 16-year-old. He was murdered by a 13-year-old. Oh, my. You know, and it was, it was probably the saddest day in my life to know that I had an opportunity to save this young man. And I waited for him to come to me. And that's not what influence is about. We have to, as long as they're alive, we have a chance to save them. And I, I failed to save him. And so I'm learning from that opportunity. Because we fail, it does not make us failures. And so I'm using that failure to motivate me. Failure is motivating. Success can be paralyzing. Mm. And so I've, um, I've used his death to motivate and inspire me to never lose another child. There will not be another willow in my life. I will do everything within my power to try and save these children. Wow, that, that's a really powerful story. And his death happened 10 years ago, didn't it? Yes, ma'am. And, and it, I see it. It still resonates with you and it, and it still inspires you. Yeah, it does because, you know, I can never forget, you know, you know, uh, people who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. And so I have to use because it troubles me and I struggle with it, you know, so I have to use it to motivate me to every time I see a child, I say to myself, that's Willow, that's Willow. And I've got to make sure that their story is edited so it does not end the way his story ends. Hmm. So I'm finding students all the time. I'm trying to make sure that either I help them or I find someone else who can help them so that Willow's able to smile down on them and say that they've learned from my mistake. Mm -hmm. That's a comforting thought, I'm sure. Yes. The subtitle of, of this podcast show is Secrets of Successful Parenting. And while you have many, many wonderful chapters in your book, I'd really like to focus on the influence of parents because that's, that's mostly who my listeners are. And I do a lot of parent education myself, People who come to these events are usually the parents who are doing the best job. It's the ones who aren't in their seats there at the parent education event who need to be there. But be that as it may, um, I get a lot of email from parents who are um, dealing with pushback from their tweens and teens. It, it's as if parents feel at this juncture in their child's life that their own influence is failing with their kids. They feel frustrated by the lack of influence they have on their middle school and high school students. And I'm wondering what you can say to encourage those parents not to give up. As a parent myself who struggles with two girls, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can imagine what life can be like for other parents. And but, yours are young yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell me about it. I've got a way to go, you know. Uh-huh. But one of the things that encourages me um, to continue on is just knowing that those children are our legacy. And the message that we send out to the rest of the world is carried through our children. And they're not perfect. Children are not perfect. They're going to make mistakes. And we have to support them and care for them and love them. And I often say to my parents you know, who, are in who come into my school and say, listen, I'm struggling. You know, I need help that they have to have a teachable spirit. As parents, we have to be willing to listen and learn from others. And that will probably be the one thing that I would say to parents is that you may be struggling in one particular area with your child. There's so many people who struggle. And not just people who struggle financially uh, or who live in areas in the inner city who are poor. There are affluent people who are struggling to raise their children. Yes. This is a, a national issue. You know, this parenting is an issue that's on everyone's agenda. So, you know, my message is continue to work with your children, continue to believe in them and be there for them. They need your presence, E-N-C-E, -E, not your E-N-T-S. 
They need your time. They need us to be there for them. And if we continue to do that, they come around and they believe and they understand that you're hard on me now simply because you want it to be easier on me later in life. Now, this makes perfect sense to me. And um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a moment because I know that we parent very often, and I'm using the word parent as as a verb, that we, we parent in a way that we received parenting. So in other words, we are carrying on a legacy, be it for better or for worse, that we received as children moving forward. And you talk a lot about having a positive worldview, that parents need to have this positive worldview so that they can give that to their children in terms of community service, uh, in terms of having a, a, a sense of what is right. But how much harder is that for a parent who did not receive that growing up to then turn around and learn how to be the kind of parent they need to be? That is very difficult. That's probably one of the uh, greatest issues um, that parents face today who are struggling it's because, as you say, we do parent as we were parented. And if we were, we were raised by parents who struggle, then it's almost like, you know, we just continue in this cycle. What else do we know? Exactly. And then we people naturally do not want to move out of their comfort zone. Right. Because if we move out of the comfort zone, we have to move into what I call the, the learning zone. And that learning zone is so close to the frustration zone. Mm. So, we, so we remain in that comfort zone. But when we know, when we know that we've seen th these things not work, not work in our own families, not work with our own children, but we've been afraid to stretch ourselves. So we've got to become comfortable with making mistakes. We have, to, we have to become comfortable with saying that I'll learn through this process, but I can't make the same mistakes that my, my parents made. So, you know, for parents, they have to read. They have to make sure that they're going on websites like yours and attending workshops and lots of professional, you know, development, lots of uh, personal development. So much is available for free or for very little cost um, that will help us to become you know, better parents. But we've, we have to find a way to reach across social lines, racial lines. We've got to reach across class lines, religious lines, and reach out to people in the local community and say, how can you help me do this a better way? How are you doing it? Mm. And, then, and then make that evaluation and decide, yes, I'm going to try another way. If we stay right within our own zone and don't move off of our square, we'll never become better people. And we're no good to our children if we're not improving ourselves. So we have to improve ourselves, not only academically, but spiritually and physically. You know that very well. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to do those things so that we're serving those who need us in a much more powerful way. Yeah, I, I love what you say in your book. And it's any, any man can father a child, you know, pretty much any woman can give birth to a child. But that doesn't make you a parent. <laughs> and parenting is hard. It's really hard. And I sure wish that more parents avail themselves of, as you say, all the information, wonderful, freely accessible information on the internet these days where, you know, TV shows that are doing great jobs helping parents understand you need parenting objectives as you take on this task. You need to know where you're going and you are a teacher. You're a teacher and, and you need a game plan. Right. Well, and you know what I say to all of my teachers? that every teacher is not a parent, 
but every parent is a teacher. Right on. And 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 so, you know, you may have said, well, gee, I guess we're going to be parents. Uh, I guess it'll work out. But it doesn't work that way. And it, it may work okay for the first couple of years because, you know, you're toting the kid around and they're not demanding a whole lot from you, even though they're always watching you. But when they hit, you know, age 10, 11, 12, they start getting that influence, as we talk about influence of peers, who may not be giving your child the messages you want them to learn, then you need to make sure that the communication is in place and that you have your game plan. And you've put together a fabulous list in your chapter on the influence of parents of the things that parents need to do. And it seems like top level objectives. And I would love to just read these bullet points and have you talk about them if you wouldn't mind. Okay, the first one that I picked up was choose the right kind of friends. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that. <laughs> My belief is that winners make others winners. Success breeds success. And you know, that's something I preach to young people all the time, is that you have to make sure that you are surrounding yourself with people who are going to make you a better person. So if we could just get kids to make that one decision that they're going to make sure that they choose their friends wisely, that would eliminate at least 50% of the problems that I, I, I face as a parent because most of my daughter's issues are a result of some of things that happen with people she's called a friend at some point in her yeah, life. Yeah. And even as adults, and for my parents, I say this often, is that we have to be careful about who we call friends, mm-hmm. who we bring into our home who we expose to our children, especially in this world we live in now where there's so many people who are not treating children the way they should. We have to be careful about who we call friend and who we, who we spend our time with because those people are going to have an opportunity to influence our own children and influence us, and that influence needs to occur in a positive way. But it's really hard, especially when kids reach middle school age. Their peers are so important to them. They're they're the center of their world. Sometimes problems with peers make kids not even want to go to school. And so, you know, I'm just wondering if you say, you, you know, you I could picture you with a seventh grader in your office, and you're saying, you know what? These kids that you're hanging around with are not real friends. And you need to figure out where your standard is when it comes to friendship. And that kid is then in this dilemma. You know, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't really feel like I share values with these kids. But, but if I leave them, who will I be with? And who will I eat lunch with? And who will I hang out with? And so it's a really tough choice for an 11 or 12-year-old to make. Not that they shouldn't have to make it, but I wonder what support parents can give to their child in those kind of situations. One of the things that parents can do is, is talk to their children about selecting those friends, but not being one who's willing to just write off a friend. Sometimes it just means that you need to be a positive influence in lives of some of these friends are not making good decisions. Ah, I like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Because you know, as well as I do, that th- those kids want to be a part of their peer group. Mm-hmm. They want to be accepted by their peer group. Desperately. Oh, no, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, 20, 30 years ago, positive, the most important influences were school, church, and family. You know, ne- today for children, it's television, mm-hmm. friends, uh, the internet, you know, those types of things. So I know who my competition is as a parent, you know, and as an educator. So I have to go to where these children are and take them to where I want them to go. 
So I know there's certain friends that you value and you love. So I have to help you. I have to help you sort of help your friends. But also there are other students in the building or in your neighborhood who are doing positive things. So because you want to be with positive children doesn't mean that you won't have any friends. Mm -hmm. It just means that maybe tomorrow morning when you go in, that one kid that nobody speaks to, you ought to be the kid that says, good morning, how are you? Mm -hmm. And talk to that kid. You ought to be the one who's willing to, to uh, you know, go and play with the, the kids that people don't play with. You know, if they're children who are from a different race or different background, you be the one to reach out and watch how many students follow you. Your leadership early in life, you can develop those skills simply by your actions. But we have to support those children and help them to understand and know that we value the fact that they want to hold on to their friends and we help them. Sometimes I'll just say to children, bring your, you know, bring your friends over or, or bring them up and let them meet me and I'll work with them and help them become the type of person that you want to be around simply because you like them enough and value their friendship. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it has worked. We've um, I've taken kids out to different events and have uh, offered them to invite some friends who don't normally attend. And you'd be amazed at how those kids turn around simply because they've now been in an environment where the only thing they see is healthy love. See, some children almost never, ever see love or even hear the word love. But when they can see that there are other children who are receiving that, then they know and appreciate the feeling of receiving and giving love. That's beautiful. And so everybody rises up to a new level of what it means to respect and to accept someone. Yes. And I was touched by something you just said there as you're, as you're giving advice to these kids. Again, taking the point of view of the parent, well, I may not really appreciate this person that you're hanging out with. That doesn't necessarily mean you write them off. I am a great proponent of kids speaking up for themselves in friendships, letting a friend know this is the, what you've just done, I don't appreciate, and being upfront about it. And sometimes that kind of helpful feedback may be the most honest thing that child has ever heard. And I sometimes think that in the case of kids who are overly aggressive and, and bullies, that everyone kowtows to them. Everyone is so intimidated by them that no one ever says to them, hey, I don't like what you're doing. There are lots of things I like about you, but not this. And that would be a great service to the child to get that kind of feedback. And yet it takes great courage to be the kind of leader that you're describing. And that's how bullies survive uh, in schools and in neighborhoods because they rely on people not willing to take that leap mm -hmm. of faith or courage mm -hmm. or um, you know, wanting to say to someone to offer that, that support for them. And that's sort of been my philosophy with sort of driving out bullying is that I challenge kids because you'd be surprised how many kids say that they witness bullying and never say anything about oh, it. Oh, I'm not surprised. They're scared. Yeah, or even the adults. I find that the adults, teachers and staff that I've worked with who've witnessed some form of bullying but who sort of just dismiss it as kids being kids. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How could they possibly think that's okay? Yeah, I'm telling you, it is unbelievable. Well, again, because these are people who may have somehow in their lives being raised when they were raised. So they're people who sort of parent the way they were parented. Mm -hmm. They're people who view violence and sometimes view it as being healthy. That's why there's some people who stay in these violent relationships mm -hmm. 
because for them, that's all they know. That helps me segue into another one of those those bullet points of the influence of parents. You talk about the how parents can influence kids to express anger without violence. Let's talk about that because that's key because it, it has so much impact on on families, on classrooms, on communities, all around. When kids have to learn that it's okay to be angry, but it's never okay to express it violently. You know, and that's a tough one because, see, I deal with many young people who say to me, you know, my mother told me if someone hits me, I should hit them back. Right. What do you say? What does that solve? That just the cycle just repeats itself. Mm-hmm. And I often give students example. What if I bump into you and it's a mistake, mm-hmm. but you don't realize that and you hit me before I can say I'm sorry? Yeah. They've got to understand that you don't solve the problem of violence with more violence. How about kids who are being treated violently at home? That's a major issue. Because those students now come into school or they come into my home and sort of have this view of how they're treated. And then they want to treat other people the same way. And and what I say to most adults is that these are normal reactions to abnormal situations. Mm. Because these children are accustomed to chaotic and violent home situations. And so when they come into my school, my classroom, and I want peace or I want you to take a seat, or I want you to show respect to a young lady, they look at me like, oh, no one says that to me. No one tells me what time to go to bed at night. No one tells me that I have to have respect. My name begins with a profane word when I'm at home. Mm. How dare you expect me to be respectful, to be upstanding? And I have to understand that student. How can I be upset with a student who witnesses that type of violence at home who actually, you know, there's students who live in homes where, where drug use is, is an everyday occurrence. Yeah, you can't be upset with them. You, you understand, you have compassion, but how do you reach them? What I tell these students, Annie, is that I love them before I even met them. <laughs> and for so many, it's all they want to hear. It's all, some students just break down and start crying when they hear that. Because for so many, they didn't really know what it felt like to have someone love them. Because, see, they have to understand that discipline is a form of love. You know, and I, I say to them, I understand what you're going through. You know, I've had children say to me, I don't want to go home, Mr. L. And I'm like, why not? And they say, because every day I go home, my mother's laying on a couch with a different man. Hmm. And I just don't want to see it anymore. I just don't want to go home and see it anymore. And I'd rather stay here or go somewhere else. And I, all I can do is cry. Yeah. That these children go through this, but yet they still come to us for our love and our support. Right. You know, my solution has been I've got to develop a school and I got, I've got to build a dormitory right attached to the school, <laughs> a public school with a dormitory so I can help keep these children safe and get people to come in and help me to provide a village for these children. I think that's going to be the solution that we find ways to offer these students the kind of support that they need and that they're not receiving at home. Because if you don't give it to them, if you don't give them the the home that they're not getting at home, then there's no way they can succeed. Right. And for many, there's no way that they can go on living. There's so many students now we're taking their own lives. Yes. It amazes me at the number of teens that we have who are either homeless or suicidal. I know. You know, and I'm not trying to take over someone's job as a parent. I don't believe me. I have two of my own, so I don't need any more. But it's so it is so difficult to see a child who you know just needs a healthy and loving home, a place to be where they feel safe, and knowing that just that one change. Could make the difference in a child's life or in their state of mental health. 
just that small change. And I know that it's the only thing that, that we can do. And for me, it's encouraging because I have parents who come to me and say, wow, I appreciate you taking an interest in my child's life because I've seen a difference in my child. You know, thanks for becoming a part of life. If I take them to church or, you know, some other, you know, uh, activities, parents appreciate that children have had a chance to get out of a toxic environment and get to one that's more healthy and one more loving. I appreciate what you said earlier that the kind of toxicity in different homes obviously has different flavors, but in no way should our listeners assume that families who are living in the inner city who may be dealing with financial crises and a a lack of X, Y, or Z are in some way the only ones who don't provide everything kids need. We've got plenty of that in homes that, as you say, are, are much more affluent. And I deal with that a lot in the private schools where I do parent education. I often see parents who have the means to indulge their children. They are very affluent and they in fact overindulge their children to the degree that the kids are raised feeling very entitled and very self-centered. And when parents then realize that they have in fact contributed to raising a child who is out to one up everyone else and expects everything to come to them. And the parent says, well, we need to change the program here. And they get all kinds of pushback from their kid. Well, again, in the same way that you just described, a child who has seen violence will act out violently. A child who's been catered to will assume that's their right. (laughs) And so I want to just make it really clear that there's no one right way to parent, but there are plenty of wrong (laughs) ways. And they they go across economic strata, that's for sure. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Yes, that's so true. There's another one of your bullet points here from your The Influence of Parents chapter, and I wrote it down as, listen to your kids. Mm-hmm. How important is that? Let's. I have a star by it. <laughs> Can we talk about <laughs> the importance of just shutting up and listening to your kids, what yeah. that's about, and how that is a positive influence on them? And it's so easy for us to, you know, to assume that, you know, listen, we're the parent, we're the adult, you listen to us, but we learn so much from our children just listening. You know, I often say that children flip the script on us. If you look at the Columbine situation where those students went in and created this this tragic situation in this high school, these are students who at some point, I'm sure, tried to reach out, whether it be verbal or nonverbal. See, 85% of communication is nonverbal. So if we just would watch and listen, look at the body language of our children, watch their actions, we can learn so much. There's so many tragic situations that we've seen around the country where children have tried to reach out to their parents and they've said that no one would listen to me. And I felt that nobody was listening. We've got to make time. Often as parents, we'll be there uh, physically for our children, but mentally we're not there. We have children have to know that we're engaged and we're listening to what they're saying because many times they're reaching out for help and we're not listening. And, and our, there's so many children in our nation who are struggling because we simply do not listen to our children. If I could say it to parents a million times, I would. Please take the time to talk to your children. Sit down with them over dinner. How was school? How was your day? Who are your friends? How are your friends? What kinds of things do you have planned? 
What do you like? What don't you like? Try to find out as much as you can about your, your children and you will make such a big difference in their lives because children often, often and repeatedly say that they do not feel that adults listen to them. I hear that all the time in the emails. I've been getting emails from kids from around the world for the last 13 years, and I hear that so often. My parents don't care. My parents don't listen. And it's funny because parents of kids who are just reaching middle school and high school often say, my kids don't listen. Well, the reason they're not listening is we haven't shown them what listening with respect and compassion looks like. (laughs) So again, we got to walk the walk. Right. We've got to walk. Yeah, we can't just talk the talk. We've got to walk the walk. And, and we and we have to be learners. You know, we have to be willing to to open up and say, hey, listen, talk to me. Teach me. Tell me how I can be a better parent for you. You know, and see, that means we have to be humble. You know, that means we can't be in control. And see, as parents, we want to be in control all the time. Okay, I think now would be a good time since we're talking about listening and uh, just taking the time to be there. You make a distinction in the book between being there and how you could still have an influence. Well, it's the book's called The Immortality of Influence, which means that one's influence lives on, which is a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. And it should, should make us all stop and pause about the legacy of our influence on our children. If you wouldn't mind, I would love for you to read this section of the book from your chapter, The Influence of Parents, because I think it really speaks so eloquently about being there for your kids. Oh, no problem. When I speak about the power of parents, I often tell my audiences how my father didn't live with us, contributed very little to our support, and never visited any of the schools where I was a student. He never came to any of my basketball games, and he never attended the plays in which I was involved. My dad didn't come to my high school or college graduation. I held out hope that he would attend my wedding. I even selected an outfit and shoes for him, but he did not attend. He had disappointed me most of my life because of his absence, but I hoped and I prayed that he would at least come to my wedding. It really hurt me when he didn't attend and he never explained. My dad's absence left a big void in my life, a void I still feel. Even today as a parent myself, I still wish he could have been there. He's dead, so that's not possible, but I realized I needed my father more than I ever thought I did. I'm not alone. Thousands of other kids have missed out as I did by not having a father present. My mother was always there for those events and I'm grateful, but she couldn't completely compensate for his absence. As young people, we want our fathers to be present in our lives and to be involved in what we do. I make a special plea for fathers because so many of us men are absent. Our children need to see positive male role models early in life. Not being there is not something we can make up for later. Thank you. That was so well said. So as we close our conversation today, can we talk a little bit about the role of fathers in terms of their daughters' lives, which I find a really interesting kind of phenomenon as someone who probably 70% of the email that I get is from girls and girls who are making unwise choices in terms of boyfriends and sexual activity. And when I I see one of these emails come across, a big red flag goes up for me, Principal Ellen. I'm thinking, where is this girl's dad? And so I would love it if you could just talk a little bit as the father of two daughters, 
why a father's role in his daughter's life, especially as she becomes a tween and teen, is so essential. A daughter is always going to be close to her mother, and we all understand that. But every girl wants to be special in her father's eyes. You know, and these young ladies, when they grow up, they compare every man that they meet to their father. So if the father is not there, or if the father is not a good role model, then these young ladies begin to see these men who are not positive as role models for them. They are attracted to, you know, we often hear the, you know, men say, well, I can't find anyone because women only want the bad guys. You know, I'm a good guy. But so many of them, that's their picture of manhood. Mm. That's their picture of what a good man looks like. And so as a father, we help to save our daughters from those unhealthy relationships when we are there. You know, and we, and, and we don't have to be there every day. If you can't be there every day, that's okay. We should be there every day. But if we can't be, have that influence. Because even when you're not around, those daughters should be thinking about wanting to please you, wanting to think about that. I thought one day, Annie, about how often my daughter says to me in one day, a single day, either the word daddy or I love you. Mm-hmm. And I multiplied about 350 times to see what it would be like in a year. Thousands and thousands of times these children have said the word daddy or I love you in a year. And I think so as a girl who does not have a dad who grows up for years and years and years, never having said that word for them after a while, when they go in the neighborhood, they begin to see the gang members. That's why you see a growing number of young ladies who are attracted to gangs now mm-hmm. because they see the men in the gang as family, as that man that they've been seeking who has not been there for them. So we, you know, as men, we have to be there not only to protect our girls, but also to be that positive image for them, which changes their self-concept which helps them to realize that they are the queens that they are because I have a king at home with me (laughs) who sends me out into the world and tells me I am a queen and that I am to be respected and protected at all times. Unfortunately, we are basically living in a fatherless society and we have so many children who are being raised in homes without their fathers and they grow up and So unfortunately, if they're young ladies, they believe that, hey, it's okay for me to raise children without a father. Or if they're a male, they believe it's okay for me to father these children and not be there. And because you've produced a child does not make you a father. So we've got to find a way. If we're going to fix this problem in our country, we have to fix our families. And men have to step up. We can no longer continue to try to build a nation on the backs of our women. We've tried it for over 200 years and it's not worked. We have to step up as men and we have to be there for our, our women. We have to be there for our children. We have to be there for our daughters. We have to be there for our country. Now, let's talk just a little bit because you've just said something really interesting. For the dad who is doing a good job and doing the positive influence that he needs to give to his daughter, she goes out in the world and she says, I've got a king at home. I'm a queen and I deserve respect and admiration. Now, what message does the effective dad give to his son? Wow, that's a great question. The effective dad says to his son that when you go out and you meet a young lady who you're interested in, and you must understand that a king always respects his queen and that the king and queen 
need one another. They must have mutual respect. See, this is why I teach children chess because children <laughs> have to under see children have to understand that that king, although he's the most important piece on the board, he is not the most powerful. The most powerful is the queen. And my boys, my my male chess players, they struggle with that concept <laughs> that a woman is the most powerful piece on the board. I have seen grown men who play chess cry when they lose their queen. <laughs> Because they need that queen. And so I try to draw the relationship for children that that is the same way you treat your wife or your mother or your sister. You cannot lose that queen. She's powerful and you must respect her. You must protect her. So you go out in life and you get educated and you prepare yourself to become the kind of king who can protect that young lady who can provide for her. And that means you go to school. That means you live a good life. That means you are a man of character when no one is looking. Can you imagine what Tiger Woods' life would be like if he followed those principles? Hmm. Because he had a good father, he had a good family, but once he became a man and he had that power, he lost the vision and understanding that he had to live that life even when no one was looking. That's what they say. Oh, yes, yes. And see, you have to be prepared for your queen. And I tell my young ladies, you must be prepared for your king. Just because you think you are a queen, you must be ready, meaning you, you have to make sure you're in, doing well in school. And you have to make sure that you're respecting yourself. Because if you don't respect yourself, how can you expect anyone else to respect you? Right. And then you come together as a king and queen, and you develop a family, and you stay together through the tough times. You stay together so that your children understand that the family unit is very important. It's the key to all of it. It really is. And, and it's as leaders in our family, as mothers and fathers and leaders in our family, this is how we influence the next generation. And that makes perfect sense to me. And there are huge bumps and potholes in the world of parenting. And we need to know that there are places we can go to to get support and help and encouragement when we need it as parents. This podcast show is one of them. Your books is one of them. And there are thousands of other wonderful resources that a generation or two ago were not there. You know, people didn't, didn't talk about what they needed or what they felt they were missing as parents. It, it was all done behind closed doors and you muddled through as best as you can. But now we're thankfully in a time and place where people are stepping up to the plate, talking about what effective parenting is about, talking about the role of positive influencers in our children's lives, and how we can all learn from each other. It's pretty powerful. And to not tap into it is a wasted and missed opportunity. Yeah, it is. And, and of course, and I know, I understand it takes a village to raise a child. But see, as parents, we also have to understand that when that child, when they have 101 temperature, the village is not there. You know, <laughs> Where's the village? <laughs> the village is not there where we're up, you know, with, take, with the thermometer and, and the aspirin and those kinds of things. That's mom and dad. When they go out on that first date and they don't come home when they're supposed to and they don't call you like you told them to, the village is not around pacing around at night at 9 or 10 o'clock. That's mom and dad. And so we're, as parents, we are the people our children count on and they look to us to be good role models in life. And we'll never be perfect. There's no handbook for parents. There's no guidebook. The only thing we can do is learn from our mistakes and we must make sure that we love from the heart. Love our children and they will grow up and become loving people. Oh, 
That is so true. I want to thank you so much, Salam, for spending some time. I know you're incredibly busy, and I really appreciate your being here with us and sharing your insights. My guest today has been Salom Thomas L., the book, The Immortality of Influence, We Can Build the Best Minds of the Next Generation. Thank you so much for the work that you do. You've influenced me. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't my goal, but I'll take it. (laughs) Thank you very much. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. To learn more about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest, Dr. Elizabeth J. Mayer, will talk about her extraordinary book, Gender, Bullying, and Harassment, Strategies to End Sexism and Homophobia in Schools. Till then, happy parenting! Happy parenting!